Excel Pro. Unless Congress is very plainly going to state that animals can bring lawsuits, animals can't bring lawsuits, which is, of course, funny because human beings are animals and bring an awful lot of copyright infringement suits. But just to give some sense of how tricky literal interpretation is in this space. Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerleither. Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, intellectual property, and copyright law with Ryan Abbott. Our guest is professor of law and health sciences at the University of Surrey School of Law and adjunct assistant professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. We spoke about AI authorship and inventorship, copyright issues around AI training data, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinaccelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now, on to my conversation with Ryan Abbott. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background? Sure. I had an unusual path into legal academia and legal practice. So I did an undergraduate degree at UCLA in integrative medical theory, combined with a four-year master's degree in traditional oriental medicine, which is largely acupuncture and herbal medicine. I then went on and did a dual degree in medicine and law between UC San Diego School of Medicine and Yale Law School. Did a medical internship to get my license. Someone told me you have too many degrees to do anything other than academia. So I went straight into the academy. And you've written extensively on AI authorship and inventorship and the need for a better legal framework around that. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and what your thoughts are at a high level on how the law should treat AI creations and ownership? Sure. It is something I've been thinking about for a while, and a lot of people have, although, again, most of these people have been law professors. And it's been very interesting that we would write these papers saying this is going to be important at some point and people should pay attention to it, and there's all these unresolved questions, and everyone else would more or less ignore that. And just this past year, breakthroughs in generative AI systems have suddenly thrust these issues into the public consciousness with at least a little bit of anxiety into boardrooms, management decisions at large corporates. And so it's been exciting to see something that academics have been talking about for a long time, taking on some real world importance. There's a lot of issues associated with AI and IP and with AI and law generally, all sorts of things from generative AI systems coming up with defamatory text, what sort of First Amendment protections exist around machine-generated speech, people using AI systems now to make deep fake videos of people that did not actually take place in the physical world, and the democratization of that and how easy and accessible that has now become to people, whether you can train sophisticated machine learning algorithms based on people's protected content without their permission, whether you can copy someone's likeness or style. There's a huge host of issues. Some of the issues that I've been most involved with have been whether and to what extent you can protect AI-generated output with intellectual property rights. And in particular, 
if you asked GTP4, can you invent me a COVID vaccine? And it does, whether that's the sort of thing that could get patent protection. Or if you ask GTP4, can you write my next book for me? And it does, whether that's the sort of thing that could get copyright protection. Another thing that's curious about, the U.S. Copyright Office recently issued copyright registration guidance and human authorship requirement for applications registering AI-generated work. The office will also be holding a series of discussions this spring to address copyrightability and registration issues raised by AI works. Do you expect the rules or guidance to there to evolve significantly in the nearer term? And what role should applicants and registrants play in pushing for changes? Yeah, I do think things are going to change. They haven't really changed again since 1973. The Copyright Office has always taken the position that without human authorship, a work is not protectable, and that's the end of the story. So I disagree with that view. There's nothing in the Copyright Act that says an author needs to be a human being. In fact, for over 100 years in the United States, although we're somewhat of an international outlier in this, you've had corporate authorship. So a company can be an author, and when making a registration application, the company does not have to disclose any natural person who was involved in the making of a work. So who knows how much people have actually registered AI-generated works without disclosing that. There's also nowhere on the registration form that says, disclose this is AI-generated. If I had mid-journey make a very valuable image, I could just say that I was the author of it, and someone's unlikely to notice or challenge that. It would be challenged if it was in litigation alleging copyright infringement. And if in discovery it came out that actually I had not done anything to be a traditional author, if the Copyright Office's position is correct and validated. The Copyright Office also does not grant copyright to someone. They only register copyright, although in the United States, you pretty much need it to then sue over it. I led a pro bono legal test case which we submitted a piece of AI-generated art for registration, acknowledged it was AI-generated, the Copyright Office refused registration, and now we are suing in district court in the District of Columbia, alleging that there really is not this human authorship requirement that the Copyright Office says there is. Again, it's not in the Copyright Act. They cite to a couple of cases from the 19th century in support of it, the in-ray trademark cases and Burrough-Giles v. Cerrone. Burrow Giles v. Cerrone involved this very famous picture of Oscar Wilde, and it was the Supreme Court case in the United States to decide whether photographs were copyrightable. They now are by statute, but back then, the claim was you can't copyright a photograph. It's not the writing of an author. And the Supreme Court interpreted that term non-literally and purposively and said, really, this law was designed and the Constitution's purpose is to allow any tangible expression of an idea in the mind of an author to be protected. And the Copyright Office has interpreted that to mean, well, machines don't have minds and therefore can't be creative, and this isn't the sort of thing we want to protect. And courts have certainly talked about human authorship in many cases, but only because that's traditionally what authors were, human beings. And there's really never, until my case, been a case on it. There were a few cases where people tried to copyright a garden or said, I wrote this book, but really my dead grandmother channeled it through me. And there was the famous monkey selfies case in 2014 involving a series of pictures that a monkey took of itself. And that case got tossed out, but actually on the basis of standing. 
the Ninth Circuit said, unless Congress is very plainly going to state that animals can bring lawsuits, animals can't bring lawsuits, which is, of course, funny because human beings are animals and bring an awful lot of copyright infringement suits. But just to give some sense of how tricky literal interpretation is in this space. So the Copyright Office has been saying publicly they've been thinking about these things. And in particular, these generative AI systems are now very commonly prompt to image generators. So someone says something like, I'd like a picture of three people in a podcast and your image comes out. There is a real art to prompt engineering because I am not very good at it and my images suck. Someone like Chris Castanova, who is a famous kind of user of AI-generated systems to make artwork, have the prompts down to a science and really get some great stuff out of these systems. And this is not a machine fully autonomously making an image without any user, but there's always people involved. And there's really tricky questions of how much human input's going into this, at what point, to what extent is it the sort of thing we traditionally associate with authorship. And there's a long line of cases in the U.S. and other jurisdictions about if you are a commissioner, editor, or producer of a work, let's say that I own Cosmo magazine and I tell a human artist working for me, I want you to make a magazine cover with an astronaut striding toward a camera. And she comes back and I say, no, maybe more like this or keep trying. And at some point we get an image. Who's an author of that? The person who gives instructions or the person who does it? And it's probably pretty fact specific. The Copyright Office is basically saying this is analogous. If I tell Dolly to go make me a picture of three people doing a podcast and it does, by itself, that's probably not enough to make me an artist. But at some point, maybe there's enough iteration on it or I'm giving very detailed prompts. And so this artist, Chris Castanova, submitted now a few copyright registrations, one for a comic book they did called Zarya of the Dawn that initially got a registration where they had not disclosed it was AI generated. They went on social media and say, hey, this isn't an issue at all. I got it registered. And then the Copyright Office canceled it. And now they're in discussion with the Copyright Office and the Copyright Office most recently upheld the denial. You can copyright a prompt. You can copyright changes to images you make. You can copyright the arrangement and selection of images. Those are all human done. But the image itself, the Copyright Office said, no, the machine really did that. And it was interesting to me because if you were trying to find an example where a human artist had given a very detailed prompt, and done a lot of iterative work with the AI, that would have been a good choice for you. So it was a little surprising to me how firmly the Copyright Office came down on this. Their policy now is they want applicants to disclose what pieces of a registration are AI-generated and disclaim those. I think that's going to be an exceedingly challenging policy to enforce, firstly, Again, they're expecting that people know and understand these complicated rules and that people are going to be completely transparent about this sort of thing. But there is a tremendously gray line in this person did something versus machine did something space. So I predict a lot of challenges in this policy. Excel Pro. Thanks for listening so far. If you're enjoying this, you'll definitely want to check out my conversation with Autumn Whit Boyd, where we discuss what small businesses and social media influencers need to be aware of about intellectual property and copyright online. Now back to my interview with Ryan Abbott. 
the guidance in the Copyright Office has not addressed issues surrounding the use of copyrighted content as training data for AI. How should we be thinking about that? And what are your thoughts on attribution or compensation for the use of copyrighted works in training data? So I think issues associated with AI-generated works and copyright protection get a little more attention because they're sexier, but of more commercial interest to many parties are these issues of training data. So basically, many of these AI systems being used to generate works are based on machine learning, which themselves are based on being trained on data. And if you're going to train a machine to make images, the training set is images. And sometimes these are billions of images. And if you want billions of images, the way a lot of people are doing it is just going on the internet and scraping them off. So there's a question of whether you are allowed to do that or whether if those images have copyright protection, whether it's copyright infringement. It usually involves the making of a large number of copies of those images at least. So in the United States, it is probably the case that if it isn't infringement, it's by virtue of the fair use doctrine, which is basically a doctrine that says certain sorts of activities that would literally be copying aren't considered copyright infringement because we think they're things people should be allowed to do anyway. And it's a factor test that looks at whether a use is transformative are using it for commercial or non-commercial purposes, how much of the work are you using, what impact is this having on a right holder market, and so forth. And so some of the people making these systems basically say, look, the only way that we could make a system like this is by using billions of images. There's no possible way that we could go get permission from every person to do this. People wouldn't give us permission. The cost of doing this would be prohibitive. We're losing out on building these systems or on our AI competitiveness and of all the public benefits this gets. Right holders on the other side will say, first, many of us are in the business of licensing these images. Getty Images, for example, licenses images for purposes of machine learning. They may say there's benefits to licensing because while there will be fewer images, they may be higher quality. You may get better quality AI content because the images are curated and there's better descriptions of them. We have databases that may help avoid some of the problems with AI, inappropriate bias and unfairness. For example, we have representative databases of physicians of all races and genders. So you're not just getting white males when you type in, give me a picture of three doctors and that people can and do license these. So it's not impossible to license them. And so that's basically the two camps and where they separate. In other jurisdictions around the world, again, England being an example, they don't have an open-ended fair use doctrine. So they have specific closed statutory exceptions to infringement. And so it is a big policy issue over there. In their last copyright amendment, the European Union adopted a text and data mining exception that was fairly narrow and non-commercial. And text and data mining largely refers to drawing insights from databases, but can more broadly capture training algorithms based on data. And so the UK Intellectual Property Office did two consultations on AI and IP, and their only recommendation was that they were going to propose enacting a very broad commercial exception to text and data mining, which would have made it not copyright infringement to train these systems in this manner. But then that recommendation was not ultimately adopted at the ministerial level. And so now they're doing additional consultations on this. 
whether as a matter of statute or fair use, this sort of thing is protectable or not, is a big issue. And in the absence of definitive guidance, potentially a lot of risk for anyone using these systems. There are now lawsuits making their way through the courts in the US and in the UK on this. Getty Images, again, which is a major right holder of copyrighted content, is suing Stability AI, which operates a text-to-image generator, alleging that they train on their data without permission, that this is copyright infringement, that their works are infringing derivatives, that there's trademark infringement and some other issues associated with that. There are some other lawsuits and class actions going on now, for example, against GitHub and OpenAI and Microsoft for use of the Copilot tool, which is an AI that generates code. One of the things AI is surprisingly good at is writing software, so making other AI, essentially. And they're alleging that they train the AI on open source software in the GitHub repository without giving proper attribution. So that's perhaps more of a contractual terms of service dispute. But a lot of these things are moving on in parallel. And right now, creatives and companies are faced with these choices. Do we use these systems? Do we allow our employees to use these systems? Under what circumstances do we use these systems? And for people who you know, have aren't thinking about it as much, they're just plunging ahead and doing it full steam ahead. Ryan, thank you so much for that. I also want to ask you a couple of questions about your career path and also advice for our listeners. So one thing I'm curious about, what are some of the ways that your medical background has influenced your legal career? The medical background has been useful in the legal career for a couple of reasons. I would say, firstly, a lot of my work has been in the life sciences and in healthcare. And also as a patent attorney and a patent litigator, having a technical background has been very helpful for dealing with some of those issues. It's also something clients who are deeply in that space tend to appreciate that the scientists feel or the clinicians feel they're speaking to someone who understands things from their perspectives. So it has really helped me to work in certain subject matter areas. As it happens, my other main area of focus is in tech. And that is largely something I just picked up on the job. My initial interest in all this kind of stemmed from seeing how AI was being used in drug discovery and from there broadening out even now to where we have AI copyright issues. So it's never too late to learn something like that. But my medical background comes in handy in all sorts of unexpected ways, including on business trips when you're on a flight and someone calls for a doctor. It's good if you have to be the person pushing the button that they have that person there. Although you know, I feel a little bad at this point in my career for the person I then go over to. So I do try and see if there's a real practicing doctor on board first. Have you ever helped anyone on the flight? I did practice as a clinician for a number of years. So I saw any number of very high intensity medical crises on planes. Yes, I have helped people, but no one whose life I've saved, more people having indigestion or nosebleeds or so forth. And Ryan, what advice do you have for practitioners who are just getting started in their careers? I think AI is going to have a very significant impact on the legal profession. I don't think you need to learn how to code, especially now that AI can code. But I think that for younger attorneys, being familiar with these systems and how they can work are going to give you a significant competitive advantage. We are not quite replacing first to third year associate brief writing with GTP4, but having a proficiency with this may improve your own writing. 
And also understanding some of the dynamics that more senior attorneys might not. There are already horror stories recently from Samsung about employees putting in confidential information into chat GPT and learning that there goes their confidential protections. Lawyers are doing this too with privileged information from clients, so don't do that. Doctors are doing it with personal health information from patients, so don't do that either. So we need a generation of people who have grown up using AI and understand how to use it to augment their own performance. This was Ryan Abbott. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J O I N A C C E L P R O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day to day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-A-C-C-E-L. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kolkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Teza Zoeta, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Angelaider. Remember, we excel together. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>